Good morning. In today's headlines, tens of thousands evacuate Gaza after Israel agrees to a humanitarian pause of military operations. We have more on the next steps in allowing aid to the area. News organizations fire back after a viral watchdog report raises the question, did their freelance journalists have prior knowledge of the October 7th terrorist attacks? Who will govern Gaza after the war if Hamas is taken out? Is there a plan in place to help rebuild? A former diplomatic advisor gives us a preview. Pro-Palestinian protests continue in New York City. Demonstrators occupied several locations across the city demanding an immediate ceasefire. We have the details. As the nation honors its veterans, we spoke with retired Air Force Major Brian Maddox. He tells us about his experience in the service and what he sees regarding the employment of veterans. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning again. Also from me, I'm Evelyn Lee. We have made it to Friday. Once again, it's November 10th, and it's also one day before Veterans Day. So we want to take this one moment to thank all the veterans out there. Thank you for your service. Yes, ditto. And I actually have a lot of military and retired right, military in yeah. my family. And one of them is a CB. Oh, what, what's a CB? So a CB is part of the Navy's combat. There's their uh, construction battalion. So that, that's the name CB. They're trained for combat. Battalion and also building yeah they build airfields bridges and my uncle was actually in vietnam during the war doing just wow. that wow uh impressive but also we have other news to get to right now israeli officials reported that some 80,000 people fled northern gaza yesterday through an evacuation corridor this after israel agreed to allow daily four-hour pauses of military operations in areas of northern gaza the move comes as a first step towards allowing humanitarian aid into the area and allowing more civilians to evacuate the area Meanwhile, an Egyptian border official says around 700 foreign nationals arrived in Egypt yesterday. They evacuated Gaza through the Rafah border crossing. Here's NSC spokesman John Kirby. The way it's going to work is about three hours before the pauses will begin. The Israelis will, through a variety of means, uh, notify civilians living in northern Gaza that the pause is going to start and here's when and, and uh, also advise on the, the safest corridor, the safest passage, passage out. Israel has paused military operations for several hours at a time for the past several days to allow civilians to evacuate south. It marked the first break in fighting since the war began four weeks ago. But according to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, there would be no ceasefire without prior release of hostages held by Hamas. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the agreement marks a positive first step in easing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. He added that the pauses would provide brief windows of opportunity for the safe passage of hostages. A senior Israeli official told CNN the pauses will be localized and target different areas each time. When asked when the four-hour windows would start, he said really soon. Now let's hear more about what's happening in Gaza and in the war. We're bringing in IDF spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Colonel. So I, at first, please tell me more about the humanitarian pauses we just heard about that Israel agreed to. What exactly is happening during those four hours every day? Thank you. Yes, indeed, the IDF is con conducting humanitarian pauses in specific neighborhoods in northern Gaza to assist and alleviate and, and allow people to evacuate. We've been conducting evacuation from the north for 
four weeks now, and Hamas has been trying to stop that and prevent that. And this is what we've seen over the last two days, three days now, that when we are conducting these humanitarian uh, uh, corridors, the, the uh, evacuation corridors, we're seeing that huge amount of people are actually coming down south, are leaving. I saw yesterday on social media circulated a, a video from a lady who was interviewed in Arabic uh, saying that Hamas had prevented her and threatened her that if she goes down south, they will cut her belly open. Uh, and, and since the IDF has come in and taken uh, control of the main areas, the main routes, um, she was able to evacuate. So we're happy to see people getting out of harm's way. This is what we've been encouraging now for a month. And Hamas, because they are being pursued, can't really prevent it without causing damage. Mm. But in those four hours, for those that are leaving, how far do they actually have to travel to get to safety? Where is it safe? So we've identified and designated anywhere beneath the southern, uh, south of Wadi Gaza, which is like a wetlands and uh, separating the north from the south. Um, so it's uh, a few kilometers just south of um, of Gaza City, actually. So there is a, there is room to go. There are several hours, and it's ongoing. And uh, and I think today we even have two routes that are open, and uh, and the idea is standing by. And and yes, the, the idea is people need to get out harm's way. We are very determined to destroy and dismantle Hamas. Um, and we, we need the civilians to be out of the way in order to pursue them. Hamas understood this, and this is why they've extensively embedded themselves within the civilian pop population, within the urban arena. And this is precisely the challenge that we're facing in these days. So two things, uh, based on what you said earlier. Um, when um, So many aren't many people staying out of their own will as well? And has anything changed in the numbers of people heading south since the IDF reported that Hamas has lost control over Gaza City? So we've seen over the last two days 50,000 and 80,000. And today you've just broadcasted images coming out of the, of the north of, of, you know, loads and loads of people which are moving south because people realize that the IDF means business in removing Hamas from ever being able to govern Gaza as a staging ground for terrorism ever again. Um, and so this is the right thing to happen. I don't think you know, anybody that wants to be safer should go south. It's just better for them. It's better. It's more, it's, it's, there is water supply down south. There's food supply. The hospitals are operational down south. In the north, it's more problematic. So it, the idea of getting people out of harm's way um, contrary to what Hamas wants, is, I think, better for everybody. And now, the last update that I know is that the IDF is in Gaza City around the Al-Shifa hospital. Now, can you give us an update on that as well, what you've been finding on the ground there? So we've seen and we've announced and shared with the public widespread um, our understanding of how Hamas is use, using, utilizing hospitals in general, but also Shifa specifically. Uh, for staging grounds, for command and control positions, using them as access points to their vast tar terror tunnel network beneath uh, Gaza City and, and the towns surrounding Gaza City. Um, so when we are closing in on locations such as Shifa, it's because Hamas is operating from these places. And this is also one of the reasons why people need to evacuate and not hope that uh, nothing happens there. Because we've seen over the last few days where, uh, and, and specifically the Al-Ahli, hospital where uh, a Palestinian Islamic Jihad launched a rocket and it hit the, the car park of the hospital that it is dangerous to be congregated in hospitals because hospitals are being abused by Hamas. 
this is the, the challenge of the war. We don't want to strike hospitals. We don't want to attack hospitals because that's, you know, that they are protected and that is precisely uh, their status. But when terrorists take advantage and abuse that, they are jeopardizing the protection. So on that note, we know that Hamas hides behind the people. And in light of all this, how does the IDF uh, protect those civilian lives then with the ground operations intensifying? So I've uh, heard the reports and seen the reports from our, our forces on the ground. And they're reporting that as they pursue and move forward, they're not seeing uh, civilians on the ground in the initial areas, uh, which is good, which means actually that people are evacuated or have already evacuated. Uh, indeed, as we go closer and deeper into Gaza, Gaza City, Gaza City is the hub of Hamas's terror operations. That is the beating heart. And that is why we need to push and pursue and, and put more pressure on Hamas. You know, we have to keep in mind that they have 239 Israeli and foreign nationals being held hostage till today. And, th and that is why we need to move forward. The, the, the battle I can tell you, share with you, the battle and the, the confrontations that we are facing on the ground are extensive. Are um, They're trying to conduct uh, ambushes against our forces. That is why we've been moving very slowly, because we want to maintain uh, force protection on one hand, but also uh, maximal, uh, maximum uh, uh, engagement and, and uh, destruction of Hamas and the terrorists wherever they come out of. If they're coming out of one tunnel uh, and popping out, uh, at another, we need to be able to take care of that. Um, the, the, the war is, we understand, it is going to be a long war, precisely because they've been embedded in, Hama, in the Gaza Strip for 16 years, utilizing all of the tools of government to build this huge infrastructure. Just the, the understanding that hundreds of, of miles of tunnels beneath Gaza City, just in uh, uh, the Gaza Strip at whole, just uh, uh, gives us a clear understanding of the nature of this war that we're going to face. And that is why we need to be very slow, cautious, but advance in a way that at the end achieves our goal. So when you say it's going to be a long war, let's talk about um, before we go, when Israel says the goal is to eliminate Hamas, what exactly would this mean for the IDF exactly? Because the mentality behind Hamas will likely still exist. So when exactly is the war considered one with, without there being a possibility of Hamas 2.0? So Hamas is both an ideology, but you know we've been calling it a terrorist organization for so many years, maybe we've been lit, be, belittling it, what it actually is. It's this institutionalized terrorism. It's a government with a terrorist army. It's a government that utilizes all of the tools of government to build uh, the terrorist army, to and create a uh, terrorist manufacturing system of rockets, mortars, drones. Uh, it's a, a terrorist entity that has uh, uh, utilized all of these tools in order to build a mass force. So the end goal would be ultimately a, a, a Gaza Strip free of Hamas government. They cannot govern the Gaza Strip as a staging ground. And a terrorist uh, army that no longer exists, that are pursued destroyed and killed in the engagement with the IDF. Um, so that is, I would say, the, un the end goal. Of course, we're not looking to uh, change the ideology. We're looking to create sense, not only a sense, a reality of security and safety for the people of Israel, but I'd also say a sense of better security for the people of Gaza. Because if you can imagine the amount of 
uh, effort and money that went into building this terror tunnel network. If they would have invested that in hospitals, education, universities, uh, economy, imagine where, where Gaza and the people of Gaza would be today. Uh, uh, hundreds of each, each kilometer of tunnels cost anything between 200 and 300 dollars. Um, that's 500, something like 500 kilometers that they say that they have. It's probably more than that. But that's just the amount that they've invested in this terror system in, it, in its own. Without talking about the drones and the training and the war building and the, and the, and the paychecks that they paid the terrorists uh, that, that breached the perimeter on the 7th of October. Um, so that is the end state. They need to go. The reality after it needs to be a better security regime for Israel and a better security regime for Gaza as well. That is what we're striving to achieve and we're determined to achieve it. Right. Thank you for clarifying that for us. Thank you, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, for your time today as well. I appreciate it. Thank you. Israel's military says it carried out strikes in Syria this morning. It says it was responding to a drone attack in the southern Israeli city of Eilat. The IDF did not specify what organization was behind the attack. Yemen's Houthi terrorist group said it fired ballistic missiles toward the Red Sea port city. Eyewitness footage recorded yesterday shows people running while air sirens blare. The military says the identity of the drones is under review. It caused light damage to a civilian building, but there were no reported injuries. The IDF said the Syrian regime is fully responsible for all terror activity carried out from Syrian territory. It warned it could respond severely to any attempts to harm Israel. And coming up, the U.S. Senate passes a resolution condemning Hamas. Hear more on what the Senate calls the brutal terrorist attacks. The Treasury says the U.S. and its allies will add more sanctions against Hamas, focusing on one particular area. Find out more about the upcoming crackdown. How will Israel pull out of Gaza? Who will it give control of Gaza to if it succeeds in wiping out Hamas terrorists? We hear from a former ambassador's advisor. Welcome back. The U.S. Treasury is planning more sanctions against the Hamas terror group. The new measures will include a crackdown on its use of crypto assets. A Treasury official said efforts to block funding will focus on helpers in third countries and involve coordination with allies to shut down those avenues. The official said crypto is not where most Hamas funding comes from. However, he noted crypto use would increase if the industry doesn't add safeguards and work to prevent money laundering. The Senate passed a bipartisan unanimous resolution yesterday condemning the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. The, the resolution demanded hostages be given medical care and released immediately and that the U.S. lead a global effort to free all hostages. The resolution was co-sponsored by over 40 senators from both parties. It condemned Hamas for its, quote, premeditated, coordinated and brutal terrorist attacks on Israel. Israel will pause military operations in parts of northern Gaza for four-hour periods each day, allowing Palestinians time to flee south and receive aid. GOP presidential candidate Chris Christie announced he will travel to Israel this weekend. Christie revealed his travel plans at a New Hampshire town hall meeting. Take a look. If you really want to leave, 
You need to go over and show the people of Israel that one person running for president of the United States cares enough to get on an airplane and get over there and do what needs to be done to find out how we fix this problem. He will be the first Republican presidential candidate to visit Israel since the conflict began. Christie said he plans to visit the families of some Hamas hostage victims. And the husband of Vice President Kamala Harris visited Cornell University yesterday to meet with students and administration. He made the visit to offer support to the Jewish community at the New York University after threats of violence there. Emhoff, who is Jewish, hosted a roundtable with Jewish students, Cornell's president, police officers and others. The discussion took place in the same kosher dining hall that was closed due to threat, death threats allegedly made by a Cornell student. The student was arrested and is currently held without bail. The White House said Emhoff offered messages of hope and encourages the students to take pride in their Jewish faith. He also talked about the Biden administration's work to combat anti-Semitism and increasing security in schools and college campuses. And pro-Palestinian rallies continue in New York City. Thousands marched through Midtown Manhattan yesterday, protesting Israel's attacks on Gaza. It's the latest in a series of protests in the city. Demonstrators occupied the lobby of the New York Times and other locations in the city, demanding an immediate ceasefire. They accused the Times of showing a bias toward Israel in its coverage of the war. The protesters remained in the lobby for over an hour, reading off names of Palestinians killed in Gaza. Demonstrators also entered Black Rock's office in Hudson Yards, New York, yesterday. They held a banner in the lobby of the building, accusing its asset manager of complicity in the war on Gaza. Protests also happened outside the district office of Congresswoman Yvette Clark yesterday. Hundreds gathered outside of her office in Flatbush, New York, demanding an immediate ceasefire. Earlier yesterday, dozens of students protested at schools across the city. Thursday's protests were the largest in the city over the last few weeks. Many Hamas terrorists filmed the murderous attacks on October 7th. Basic GoPro training was even found in a manual located on a dead terrorist's body. The apparent attempt to collect propaganda material during raids included indiscriminate shooting in neighborhoods, the murder of innocent civilians, and hostage taking. But they may not have been the only ones documenting war crimes in southern Israel that day. Now the Israeli government is demanding answers after a viral report asked why Gaza-based photojournalists working for major media outlets were in the right place at the right time on the morning of the attack. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. New York City-based press watchdog Honest Reporting is questioning if freelance journalists with the Associated Press, Reuters, CNN and the New York Times had prior knowledge of the October 7th attacks. The article presents ethical questions about why they happened to be there, when Hamas terrorists breached Israel's border fence with armored bulldozers, and why they decided to go along to capture the carnage. One freelance journalist, Hassan Eslaya, had his pictures published by AP of a burning Israeli tank, and terrorists storming a gated kibbutz, setting a house on fire. The report noted he was not wearing a press vest at the time, and that the media still chose to publish his work. Youssef Massoud, who works for AP and the New York Times, also captured the destroyed tank along with two Reuters journalists who took pictures of a mob brutalizing the body of an Israeli soldier. Honest reporting assessed in their report, judging from the pictures of lynching, kidnapping, and storming of an Israeli kibbutz, it seems like the border has been breached not only physically, but also journalistically. 
Gil Hoffman, the executive director of Honest Reporting, told I-24 News, Honest Reporting did not print accusations that the journalists definitely knew, only evidence. We did not say they were embedded. We raised questions, were they? We were just wondering why they were there with these pictures so early into the attack. IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conriquez says a thorough investigation is needed before jumping to conclusions and that it's a journalist's job to report what's happening on the ground, including the atrocities and violence of war. He says distinguished and merited media organizations have questions to answer about journalists' connections to Hamas. But it's what's been happening since October 7th in the media that Conriquez says worries him the most. Very important international uh, outlets and um, uh, what they report on the ground is essentially what enters the so-called the bloodstream of international media and is then reported around the world. Conriquez says credibility is questioned when a journalist like Hassan Eslaya, who's being kissed by Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar in this photo, is being employed. How much does Hamas control and coerce media? Uh, how, what things can be reported about reality on the ground that are not convenient for Hamas? I'll tell you the answer, very little or nothing. And uh, how is this okay with international media? Permanent representative of Israel to the UN, Donnie Dannon, issued a stark warning to journalists that participated, posting on X, we will hunt them down together with the terrorists. Israeli Minister of Communication Shlomo Kahri, in an open letter Thursday, demanded an investigation from the media's and a swift and thorough response. The media's deny having any prior knowledge of the attacks. AP stated its role is to gather breaking news and information, even when horrific. It says it uses images from freelancers worldwide, including in Gaza. Reuters says the photographs it published were taken two hours after Hamas fired rockets across southern Israel and over 45 minutes after Israel said terrorists crossed the border. CNN and AP say they've cut all ties with Eslaya and that he wasn't working for them on October 7th. The New York Times accused Honest Reporting of spreading vague and untrue claims and that a review of Youssef's work shows he was documenting tragedy as it unfolded. It says he was not working for them the day of the attack. It also defended freelance journalists working in conflict areas for rushing into danger to provide first-hand accounts and documentation. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel does not seek to occupy or govern Gaza, but he says a credible force is needed to prevent another terrorist group like Hamas from taking root. Netanyahu made the comments on Fox News yesterday. He also said ceasefire is not an option until the hostages are released. Here's the Prime Minister on Fox. I think it's clear what Gaza's future has to look like. At the end of uh, the, this battle, Hamas will be gone. We'll destroy Hamas. We need to, for not only for our sake, but really for the sake of everyone, for the sake of civilization, for the sake of Palestinians and Israelis alike. What we have to see is Gaza demilitarized, de-radicalized and rebuilt. And it could, all of that can be achieved. Netanyahu says the war will continue until Hamas is defeated. He mentioned the U.S. war against ISIS and Al-Qaeda. He said although he doesn't think it will take that long, Israel will fight however long that it takes. The Israeli leader says no timetable has been set and that the IDF is proceeding step by step to reduce losses to troops and to minimize civilian casualties. And now we're bringing on Arie Lightstone, a former senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel, for a preview of what might become of Gaza after the war. Arie, thank you for your time this morning. If Israel does succeed in its goal of eradicating Hamas, what entity would govern Gaza? Well, I think it depends on 
who steps up to the plate and who is governing the United States of America at that point in time. Reflexively, uh, Tony Blinken has said, let's go back to a two-state solution, which ultimately means that he wants Ramallah uh, by Abbas to go ahead and to govern both the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, as well as Gaza. That's a failed idea. It's been a failed idea for 30 years, and all it does is doom the region to repeat itself. What Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke about yesterday was not just demilitarizing Gaza, but de-radicalizing Gaza. And if you can remove the radical elements from Gaza, which granted, I think is harder than demilitarizing Gaza, then you have an opportunity to build what people used to call Singapore of the Middle East. But I'd like to re-describe it as Dubai of the Middle East, because there is a model to actually make this work here. So can you lay out some of the possibilities of who could govern, whether that's Fatah, whether that's a PA? Yeah, none of them can govern. None of them have demonstrated their ability or willingness, frankly, to govern. I think you need a new entity, and I think you need new leadership to show up. The world has invested billions of dollars into this region. Show me where there is a leader under 45 who is willing to say that they wish to live side by side with Israel. Until that person shows up, I don't believe that Israel has anybody to hand the keys to. There is going to be a process. It's going to be a long process, but it should be a productive process to make sure that Israel does not need to repeat what's been going on since 2005. Aryeh, what do Gazans want? I mean, considering that there is a survey that shows a few years back that about half of them support Hamas leadership, but we have seen clearly that that has not led to a good outcome. Well, I think you've got two different questions. You have the outcome which says that I live only to destroy Israel, of which there is a population base in Gaza that truly believes that. They are incompatible with being neighbors. It will not exist. It cannot exist. And those people need to be demonstrated very clearly that that reality will never happen. Now, the rest of Gazans, and I hope that that is the majority of Gazans, want somebody to deliver for them. It's very clear that Hamas has not delivered for them. It's equally clear that the PA and Fatah have not delivered for them in the West Bank either. I think they're looking around the region and says, who can deliver? The model needs to be based upon what's worked in the UAE, what's worked in Bahrain, what is working in Saudi. I'm not advocating uh, rule from those countries, but I am advocating copying and pasting what has worked in those countries to be able to go and work in Gaza. That's the only model for success short of that. Israel will have to maintain full military and, unfortunately, civilian control until it can be replaced with something that is both moderate and successful. And on that note, do you expect the United Nations forces to control Gaza border in the meantime? No, the United Nations is bad at that. I don't believe Israel is going to go ahead and hand the keys over. When Israel handed the keys over to the United Nations for the north in Lebanon, Hezbollah has gone from a couple thousand rockets to over 150,000 rockets. The U.N. has decided both they don't have the will and or the interest to actually maintain security control. Israel would be placing their citizens in harmed way if they go through this entire war and ultimately turn the keys back over to the United Nations. So, Aryeh, when we look at this, we have a serious humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza right now. Does Israel have a plan to help them relocate back to where they were and then also help the area rebuild? And if so, what would that look like? Uh, they absolutely do. The question is whether the world will join them in reality or whether the world will be focused on fantasy. If the fantasy is, is that Fatah or the PA will come in and rule just like they have in the West Bank, then we're going to wind up with the same, quote, cycle of violence, which what cycle of violence ultimately means is that people are raised in order to kill Jews. They kill Jews and the Jews strike back. That doesn't work anymore. 
There are models in the Middle East of successful countries. We need to copy and paste from the successful countries and not go ahead and try to replace the not successful countries. I'll give you just a good example. The PA still has a rule on its books, a law on its books, which incentivizes terrorists to kill people. That is a law based upon the Palestinian Authority, which are considered the peaceful partners in this region. There needs to be starting from scratch. What are the basics that are required in order to be a partner? And Israel will be there and patient in order to develop both the leadership, but also the mechanisms for these laws to come into place. So, Arya, you talk about successful Arab societies here. Why is Hamas now a terrorist organization governing Gaza? Why has that area become a breeding ground for terrorists, whereas other Arab nations are peaceful and they recognize Israel? Yeah, well, uh, one of the problems is us, meaning the Western world, donating to the UNRWA, which there's two different concepts that happens. Number one is assuming that everybody in Gaza is still a refugee, which is ridiculous. Gaza has been under control of Hamas or the Palestinians since 2005. You are not a refugee any longer at that point in time. But they're still funded in these refugee schools, which teach the fact that they are there only temporarily in order to ultimately go back and to reconquer Jerusalem. The October 7th was called the Al-Quds Flood. What does Al-Quds Flood mean? It means that we are going to flood Israel until we can conquer and re-liberate Jerusalem. Until the international world decides, like President Trump did, that Jerusalem is Israel's, it will always be the capital of Israel's, and that Israel is looking to make peace, but it needs a partner on the other end, then there is no partner there. So in order to develop that, terrorism needs to be eradicated. But what Prime Minister Netanyahu said, it needs to be de-radicalized. If we're looking at our cities and we're looking at our college campuses, we can take a lesson from the Prime Minister. We need to de-radicalize those as well. You cannot chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That is an inherently genocidal chant. If you look at the countries that are successful in the region, they do not allow incitement during Friday prayer. They do not allow incitement in their school education. Incitement is the very basic that's first eliminated from the educational policy, and then you have room to be able to grow and to be free. Until that comes up as an accepted neighbor in the region, there will just be this never-ending cycle of hatred. Hatred will lead to violence, and violence will ultimately lead to war. Well, thank you for this valuable insight on this. Aryeh Lightstone, a former senior advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Israel. Thank you. Stay with us. Former President Trump's attorneys will call their first witness to the stand next week. They are preparing their defense in the New York civil fraud case. Authorities are investigating several cases of envelopes and containing a mysterious powder sent to election offices in two different states. Good to have you back. Senator Joe Manchin will not be seeking re-election. The West Virginia Democrat made the announcement yesterday. Take a look. I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. Many have been speculating whether Manchin will run for president as a third-party candidate. Some say he plans to do so with the No Labels political movement. 
Yesterday's announcement is another hint that Manchin might be aiming at the White House. He wrote that he'd fight to unite the middle and repeatedly mentioned things such as the economy, the southern border and overall safety in communities. He says these issues are neither Democrat nor Republican. Voters in the largely red state of West Virginia may elect a Republican to Manchin's open seat, possibly helping the GOP take control over the Senate. And former President Donald Trump's lawyers will begin their defense in his civil fraud case on Monday. His eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., will be the first witness called by Trump's defense team. This comes after the New York Attorney General's office was denied a motion on Thursday to limit testimony from certain expert witnesses. The judge said he would limit their testimony to relevant topics in line with his summary judgment, where he ruled Trump liable for fraud. The defense filed a motion on Thursday to toss the remaining six claims in the case, but so far there has been no ruling. Trump's attorneys said they may call Eric Trump and Trump Sr. back to the stand. A Michigan court is deciding if the state can kick former President Trump off the ballot. Entity's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the details on the growing challenge to Trump's candidacy and the arguments in court yesterday. Thank you. Please be seated. A Michigan judge specially selected to preside over a case that he normally wouldn't handle to determine whether or not Michigan's Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson can keep former President Trump off the state's ballot. In separate hearings Thursday, Judge James Robert Redford heard arguments on cases filed against Benson. Trump tried to get the cases dismissed, but the judge rejected it. Trump now plans to file his own complaint. In arguments Thursday, activists in two separate suits say the 14th Amendment disqualifies Trump from running in the 2024 election because of his involvement in the January 6th Capitol breach and that Benson has the authority to remove his name from the state's presidential primary ballot. She has the initial authority under Article 11, Section 1 of the Michigan Constitution, as well as under Michigan Election Law 168.31 to make a determination as to whether or not any presidential candidate meets the qualifications. Michigan has, and has had for a long time, much broader voter standing because Michigan recognizes the interest of every voter in the relevant district in the integrity of the election and making sure there are only eligible candidates on the ballot. Here, the Secretary of State um, has the obligation um, and the ability and has done uh, those, kind, those kinds of eligibility determinations in the past. The Secretary of State doesn't dispute that the process requires her to ensure potential candidates are eligible. But, I, but the question is, what is our authority here today with respect to a presidential primary candidate? There's just nothing in those, those statutes or, you know, even a generic sort of administrative process or anything that gives us the authority. And, Trump isn't a party to these cases, but his attorney was allowed to weigh in. He said the law should be read in its entirety. Allowing a state secretary or, or other agency to disqualify a candidate uh, from even running has an impact beyond the state. Under Michigan law, there's no such power, and under federal law, there's no such power. Lawsuits to disqualify Trump have emerged in multiple states, including Colorado and Minnesota. The suits cite a federal law from the 1800s that prohibits holding office for those who swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, but then engaged in insurrection against it. 
The Minnesota Supreme Court on Wednesday dismissed a suit that relied on this provision. The two-sentence clause in the 14th Amendment has been used only a handful of times since the years after the Civil War. Judge Redford is permitting Trump to file his own complaint against the Secretary of State. Redford plans to issue three separate orders as quickly as possible. Authorities are investigating after election officers found suspicious envelopes this week. It happened in two separate states, Washington State and Georgia. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said Fulton County election workers intercepted a suspicious letter before it reached the office. He called the incident an act of domestic terrorism. Washington Secretary of State Steve Hobbs said election workers in several counties discovered envelopes on Wednesday that contained powdery substances. Four of the envelopes tested positive for fentanyl. Another tested positive for baking soda. Here's his reaction. This is a horrible tragedy and, and just bringing terror and fear to these election workers who are just trying to do the right thing and just process the election. The Department of Justice aims to protect the right to interstate travel for those seeking legal abortions. The DOJ said yesterday that the Constitution protects the right to travel across state lines to take part in legal conduct in another state. It said states can't stop third parties from helping others exercise that right. The Department's state of statement of interest is a response to lawsuits in Alabama. They were filed because the state's attorney general threatens to prosecute people who assist women in getting legal abortions in other states. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, the DOJ has challenged abortion restrictions it says conflict with federal law. Alabama's attorney general did not respond to a media request for comment. An American lawyer is accused of fatally shooting two climate protesters in Panama. The shooting occurred on Tuesday on the Pan American Highway in the Chame sector. Kenneth Darlington was filmed as he approached a group of protesters blocking the highway. The demonstrators were protesting a proposed mining contract for a Canadian company. Local media caught the shooting on camera. Footage shows Darlington waving his gun around during an argument with demonstrators before firing his weapon. One protester died at the scene while another was pronounced dead at the hospital. Police later took Darlington away. Darlington was also arrested in 2005 after local authorities found firearms at his Panama City apartment. The firearms included an AK-47 and an M-16. He was later acquitted after claiming in court that the weapons were part of a collection. Darlington holds both American and Panamanian citizenship. He faces charges of murder and illegal possession of a firearm. Up next, Meta is returning to a ch the Chinese market. The company struck a deal with a Chinese technology firm after its platforms were banned nearly 15 years ago. But what will the deal include? And your sugary donut cravings could be satisfied at a McDonald's soon, with Krispy Kreme set to expand its partnership with the fast food giant. Stay tuned for that story. Good to have you back. Meta Platforms has struck a deal, new deal with Chinese tech company Tencent Holdings. That's according to a report yesterday from the Wall Street Journal. The deal revolves around selling a new low-cost virtual reality headset in China. The deal comes as Meta is trying to regain market opportunities in a country where Facebook and Instagram remain blocked. 
It will reportedly make Tencent the exclusive seller of Meta's headsets in China. Facebook and Twitter were blocked by Beijing in 2009. The block followed the deadly protests in China's Xinjiang province, which Chinese authorities blamed on social media sites. The VR deal gives Meta a chance to compete with TikTok owner ByteDance, which makes the VR headset Pico. According to the report, sales of the headset will start by late 2024, but so far, no mention of its, of its potential price. In other news, Krispy Kreme donut lovers, we've got some good news for you. Krispy Kreme donuts may soon be available at more McDonald's locations. Krispy Kreme is in talks to expand its partnership with McDonald's. We're bringing in Entity Business host Don Ma to tell us more. Don, it's great to see you again. Give us the updates on uh, the details in this expanded partnership. Sure. Uh, so this news uh, was revealed in a statement uh, as part of Krispy Kreme's uh, third quarter earnings report. Um, the partnership is actually part of a broader strategy to increase uh, the number of places to uh, get your uh, sugary glazed fix. Uh, the donut maker CEO says that well, uh, nothing has been finalized at, at this moment, um, but they are in advanced uh, discussions about expanding the partnership uh, and are making investments. Uh, Krispy Kreme is uh, learning how to stock fast food restaurants with uh, fresh uh, donuts uh, the same way it does in shelves and kiosks in grocery stores, convenience stores and gas stations. Um, so the Krispy Kreme flavors uh, will be available at participating uh, McDonald's restaurants and drive-thrus. And the flavors uh, will be original glazed, chocolate iced with sprinkles and raspberry filled. Sweet. Well, I have to say I, I enjoy my Krispy Kreme donuts, but... Krispy um, Kreme, it, it packs a lot of calories in a small little you know, food item, just like McDonald's does. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> All right, but don't not go just yet. Uh, see what I did there? Do you have anything else for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, a bit of uh, more serious news. Uh, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell gave a speech yesterday uh, that many people are watching closely. He's uh, leaving the door open for additional interest rate hikes uh, for future Fed meetings. Uh, but, but Powell made it clear that the Fed is actually uh, carefully balancing the inflation problem and the very uh, real risk that the central bank could cause economic damage with their uh, rate hikes. Uh, Powell's remarks were sort of a reality check uh, for those who became convinced the Fed's tightening campaign was over. Um, and on that news, the three main U.S. equity indices sank after Powell's remarks. And besides that, it seems like Disney is delaying the release of several Marvel films as studios adjust their schedules after the end of the actor strike. The movie Deadpool was pushed back uh, from a May release to sometime in late July. The release of Blade uh, was postponed until November 2025. And other Marvel movies like Thunderbolts uh, and Captain America are also rescheduled for 2025 release dates. Um, but outside of Marvel, Disney uh, moved the debut of Mufasa, The Lion King, to December 2024, um, five months later than initially planned. Um, so just a couple of things from me this morning. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and keep an eye out for the report I'm working on in which we visited the Oscorp in New York City to talk about some of these uh, movie sets. Something fun to look forward to. Don yeah. Ma, host of NTD Business, thank you. Thank you. Well, that sounds exciting. <laughs> yeah, we saw a lot. It was uh, Marvel. Well, that's the um, where the Avengers had their bridge at Grand oh, Central. Yeah. 
And there, there's another there, that wasn't included in it, but we did pass by. Oh, that's Funny cool. tour guide, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Entertaining. Well, I didn't know that, so I'm definitely looking forward for this one. Mm -hmm. uh, we're heading to break. We hear from a retired Air Force pilot who's navigated out of some challenging situations during his career. He gives his per perspective on veterans in the labor market. Welcome back, and as the nation prepares to honor its veterans, let's hear from retired Air Force Major Brian Maddox on his experience in the service and what he sees regarding the employment of veterans. It's funny, I started off as a, as a very um, timid kid. I liked bugs and model airplanes, and uh, luckily I, f I fell in love with the, with the latter, right? So I fell in love with airplanes, and my entire goal in life was to be a fighter pilot since I was a kid. And that, that decision um, really led me to the life that I live now. I went, I, I went to the, I attended the United States Air Force Academy, a uh, proud graduate of uh, that institution, class of 1991, Bold Gold, um, and then uh, went on to become a, a pilot in, in multiple different aircraft to include the F-15E Strike Eagle uh, fighter pilot, the U-2 spy plane. And uh, I finished off my career doing uh, operational tested evaluation at the, um, the the home of of flight test Edwards Air Force Base. That's excellent, Brian. And only a small percentage of people, as we know, become pilots. And you got to have great vision. Uh, you have to have a lot of things. Vision's one of them. So yes, I was blessed and lucky to have 2020 vision. That that's that's just that's genetics. You, you can't help that. <laughs> excellent. So Brian, what was the most challenging moment for you in the service? So probably the most challenging individual moment. Um, I was at 70,000 feet uh, at two o'clock in the morning over uh, over Afghanistan uh, one night doing my doing my job and uh, my airplane tried to turn upside down uh, on me. Um, There's a phenomenon called jamming and uh, I was being I was being jammed. And so uh, my navigational equipment was completely useless. And I, uh, I was able, because of my training and pilot training, I was able to uh, navigate myself from Afghanistan to our base uh, in the United Arab Emirates just using a, uh, basically a compass and a, and a stopwatch. Wow, that is incredible. So glad that it worked out well in that crazy situation. I can imagine what you were going through at that moment. So Brian, tell us a little about the leadership landscape here. Are businesses wise to hire military people? Um, absolutely, and I think uh, my my personal impression is that uh, um, veteran hiring is 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 an, an underserved, if you will, uh, phenomenon. Uh, I believe that veterans bring uh, three things to the table that are critical to to uh, current businesses, and that is servant leadership, um, teamwork, and, and and adaptability and the ability, the ability to problem solve. So in your experience, have you seen businesses be in line with that and go and seek out these resilient members of the U.S. military and those that are retired? You know, I, I, that's a difficult question to ask, answer because the way, I, the way I've been, the, the vibe that I get, now I, I'm gonna caveat this a little bit because I retired in 2011 and I've been working in industry ever since. So I haven't been that close necessarily to the hiring problem or the hiring issue, if you will, but I feel like uh, just the vibe that I feel is that is that uh, the the hiring of a veteran 
is is like you're you're doing the veteran a favor, perhaps, um, is the just the impression I guess I get, and I, I would say that that is uh, as far from the truth as you can get. If you're hiring a, veg, a, vet, a veteran, again, you're hiring someone who uh, has servant leadership mindset, who has teamwork skills, who has uh, infinite problem solving skills, and and that's all above and beyond. Uh, the functional role that that you're hiring for, you can teach that. Uh, I taught I taught people how to fly airplanes, who had never been in an airplane before in, in six months. And you can teach anything, um, and particularly a veteran who's who has that resilience from their experience and their training. Brian Maddox, U.S. Air Force major, who's retired. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Really is impressive how he's able to navigate with a stopwatch and a compass. Oh, isn't that what is that dead reckoning or something? Yeah, they basically use checkpoints that they have if they have a chart, and then they time it so they can figure out their ground yeah. speed. Wow, it's crazy stuff. I mean, they have to account for wind too, so they have to point their plane in the direction of the wind, so they're kind of going in the right direction anyway. It's really tricky. Yeah, I I can see that. Wow. Um, all right, we're wrapping up the first part, and here's the second part of our show. Tens of thousands flee northern Gaza after Israel agrees to a humanitarian pause to military operations. The move marks the first step in allowing aid in and civilians out of Gaza. We get some analysis of allegations around Gaza-based reporters at the scene during the October 7th attack. How are they at the right place at the right time, a rabbi weighs in. Thousands take to the streets as pro-Palestinian protests continue in New York City. Demonstrators occupied several locations demanding an immediate ceasefire. A nonprofit organization honors veterans with live bugglers to play taps at funeral services. Find out more about their mission. Hello again, and to those of you just joining us, good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. And I'm Evelyn Lee. Good morning. Let's get right into our top stories. Many Hamas terrorists filmed the murderous attacks on October 7th. Basic GoPro training was even found in a manual located on a dead terrorist's body. The apparent attempt to collect propaganda material during raids included indiscriminate shooting in neighborhoods, the murder of innocent civilians, and hostage-taking. But they might not have been the only ones documenting war crimes in southern Israel that day. Now the Israeli government is demanding answers after a viral report asked why Gaza-based photojournalists working for major media outlets were in the right place at the right time on the morning of the attack. And Didi's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. New York City-based press watchdog Honest Reporting is questioning if freelance journalists with the Associated Press, Reuters, CNN and the New York Times had prior knowledge of the October 7th attacks. The article presents ethical questions about why they happened to be there, when Hamas terrorists breached Israel's border fence with armored bulldozers, and why they decided to go along to capture the carnage. One freelance journalist, Hassan Eslaya, had his pictures published by AP of a burning Israeli tank and terrorists storming a gated kibbutz, setting a house on fire. The report noted he was not wearing a press vest at the time and that the media still chose to publish his work. Youssef Massoud, who works for AP and the New York Times, also captured the destroyed tank, along with two Reuters journalists who took pictures of a mob brutalizing the body of an Israeli soldier. 
Honest reporting assessed in their report, judging from the pictures of lynching, kidnapping, and storming of an Israeli kibbutz, it seems like the border has been breached not only physically, but also journalistically. Gil Hoffman, the executive director of Honest Reporting, told I-24 News, Honest Reporting did not print accusations that the journalists definitely knew, only evidence. We did not say they were embedded. We raised questions, were they? We were just wondering why they were there with these pictures so early into the attack. IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conriquez says a thorough investigation is needed before jumping to conclusions, and that it's a journalist's job to report what's happening on the ground, including the atrocities and violence of war. He says distinguished and merited media organizations have questions to answer about journalists' connections to Hamas. But it's what's been happening since October 7th in the media that Conriquez says worries him the most. Very important international uh, outlets and um, uh, what they report on the ground is essentially what enters the so-called the bloodstream of international media and is then reported around the world. Conriquez says credibility is questioned when a journalist like Hassan Eslaya, who's being kissed by Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar in this photo, is being employed. How much does Hamas control and coerce media? Uh, how, what things can be reported about reality on the ground that are not convenient for Hamas? I'll tell you the answer, very little or nothing. And uh, how is this okay with international media? Permanent representative of Israel to the UN, Donnie Dannon, issued a stark warning to journalists that participated, posting on X, we will hunt them down together with the terrorists. Israeli Minister of Communications Shlomo Kahri, in an open letter Thursday, demanded an investigation from the media's and a swift and thorough response. The media's deny having any prior knowledge of the attacks. AP stated its role is to gather breaking news and information, even when horrific. It says it uses images from freelancers worldwide, including in Gaza. Reuters says the photographs it published were taken two hours after Hamas fired rockets across southern Israel and over 45 minutes after Israel said terrorists crossed the border. CNN and AP say they've cut all ties with Eslaya and that he wasn't working for them on October 7th. The New York Times accused honest reporting of spreading vague and untrue claims and that a review of Youssef's work shows he was documenting tragedy as it unfolded. It says he was not working for them the day of the attack. It also defended freelance journalists working in conflict areas for rushing into danger to provide first-hand accounts and documentation. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. To learn more about these allegations against Gaza-based photojournalists and the media organizations that use their content, we're going to speak to Rabbi Yaakov Menken, the managing director at the Coalition for Jewish Values. Rabbi Menken, thank you for your time this morning. In your view, are these journalists accomplices to crimes against humanity like Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says they are? Good morning and thank you for having me. Uh, the evidence certainly seems to point that way. If they were embedded with Hamas during the terror attacks, that means that they knew something beforehand. And if they knew something beforehand, I mean, obviously, that goes beyond the realm of professional ethics. That's simply uh, participating in the barbarism. How is it possible for them to be at the right place at the right time without this link? Well, isn't isn't that the golden question? We, we don't know for sure. I mean, we know with absolute certainty that civilians drew the maps that the terrorists used to raid the kibbutzim. They knew to go house to house. They knew how many people were in that house. They knew how many children were in that house. They knew if the house had a pet dog. It was unbelievable the amount of barbaric work done by these so-called civilians who had work permits. We also know that civilians came after the uniformed terrorists and did kind of cleanup work. 
the people who were left behind. A 74-year-old woman who used a walker and needed medication, we hope still needs medication on a daily basis, she was kidnapped into Gaza by ununiformed so-called civilians. And now we have this solid evidence that civilians were embedded together with Hamas. This is something worth keeping in mind when the Gaza Health Ministry keeps asserting how there are so many civilian casualties in Gaza. So what sort of inquiry will these media organizations that are accused need to do in order to resolve these ethical questions? Well, the New York Times needs to recognize that what happened probably happened. I mean, there's obvious photographic evidence that shows that people were a little too conveniently on site entirely too quickly. And they obviously need, well, CNN and Reuters and the AP already said, we're, gonna, we're cutting ties with this guy. Besides the, uh, the other stuff, the fact that the leader of the Hamas terror assault gave the guy a kiss on the cheek indicates they were way too close for one to be reporting on the evil deeds of the other. So the New York Times is claiming they don't have the evidence, they don't believe the evidence, they're not gonna follow the evidence, they're gonna keep the guy on, on uh, the payroll for occasional use, that's unacceptable. Thank you so much for your input on this. Rabbi Yaakov Menken, Managing Director at the Coalition for Jewish Values. Thank you. Coming up, thousands take to the streets as pro-Palestinian demonstrations continue in New York City. Protesters occupied several locations demanding an immediate ceasefire. Stay with us for more on that. Debbie Pack, top cabinet officials of the U.S. and India are working to boost defense cooperation in the Indo-Pacific region. The officials met earlier today and are expected to discuss their mutual concerns over China. They will be joined by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and India's Defense Minister. Here's Secretary of State Antony Blinken. We are promoting a free and open, prosperous, secure and resilient Indo-Pacific, including by strengthening our partnership through the Quad with Japan and Australia. Israeli officials reported that some 80,000 people fled northern Gaza yesterday through an evacuation corridor. This after Israel agreed to allow daily four-hour pauses of military operations in areas of northern Gaza. The move comes as a first step towards allowing humanitarian aid into the area and allowing more civilians to evacuate the area. Meanwhile, an Egyptian border official says around 700 foreign nationals arrived in Egypt yesterday. They evacuated Gaza through the Rafah border crossing. Here's NSC spokesman John Kirby. The way it's going to work is about three hours before the pauses will begin. The Israelis will, through a variety of means, uh, notify civilians living in northern Gaza that the pause is going to start and here's when and, and uh, also advise on the, the safest corridor, the safest passes, passage out. Israel has paused military operations for several hours at a time for the past several days to allow civilians to evacuate south. It marked the first break in fighting since the war began four weeks ago. But according to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, there would be no ceasefire without prior release of hostages held by Hamas. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the agreement marks a positive first step in easing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. He added that the pauses would provide brief windows of opportunity for the safe passage of hostages. A senior Israeli official told CNN the pauses will be localized 
and target different areas each time. When asked when the four-hour windows would start, he said really soon. And earlier I spoke to IDF spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner to learn more about what's happening in Gaza and how the IDF is planning to proceed with a humanitarian pause. The IDF is con conducting humanitarian pauses in specific neighborhoods in northern Gaza to assist and alleviate and, and allow people to evacuate. We've been conducting evacuation from the north for four weeks now and Hamas has been trying to stop that and prevent that. But in those four hours, for those that are leaving, how far do they actually have to travel to get to safety? Where is it safe? So we've identified and designated anywhere beneath the southern, uh, south of Wadi Gaza, which is like wetlands and uh, separating the north from the south. Um, so it's uh, a few kilometers just south of, um, of Gaza City, actually. So there is, there is room to go. There are several hours. And it's ongoing, and, and I think today we even have two routes that are open, and, uh, and the IDF is standing by. And, and yes, the, the idea is people need to get out of harm's way. We are very determined to destroy and dismantle Hamas, um, and we, we need the civilians to be out of the way in order to pursue them. Hamas understood this, and this is why they've extensively embedded themselves within the civilian population, within the urban arena. And this is precisely the challenge that we're facing in these days. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel does not seek to occupy or govern Gaza, but he says a credible force is needed to prevent another terrorist group like Hamas from taking root. Netanyahu made the comments on Fox News yesterday. He also said ceasefire is not an option until the hostages are released. Here's the Prime Minister on Fox. I think it's clear what Gaza's future has to look like. At the end of uh, the, this battle, Hamas will be gone. We'll destroy Hamas. We need to, for not only for our sake, but really for the sake of everyone, for the sake of civilization, for the sake of Palestinians and Israelis alike. What we have to see is Gaza demilitarized, de-radicalized, and rebuilt. And it could, all of that can be achieved. Netanyahu says the war will continue until Hamas is defeated. He mentioned the U.S. war against ISIS and al-Qaeda. He said although he doesn't think it will take that long, Israel will fight however long that it, that it takes. The Israeli leader says no timetable has been set and that the IDF is proceeding step by step to reduce losses to troops and minimize civilian casualties. Pro-Palestinian rallies continue in New York City. Thousands marched through Midtown Manhattan yesterday protesting Israel's attacks on Gaza. It's the latest in a series of protests in the city. Demonstrators occupied the lobby of the New York Times and other locations in the city demanding an immediate ceasefire. They accused the Times of showing a bias toward Israel in its coverage of the war. The protesters remained in the lobby for over an hour, reading off names of Palestinians killed in Gaza. Demonstrators also entered Black Rock's offices in Hudson Yards, New York, yesterday. They held a banner in the lobby of the building, accusing its asset manager of complicity in the war on Gaza. Protests also happened outside the district office of Congresswoman Yvette Clark yesterday. Hundreds gathered outside her office in Flatbush, New York, demanding an immediate ceasefire. Earlier yesterday, dozens of students protested at schools across the city. Thursday's protests were the largest in the city over the past few weeks. 
In other news now, the song Taps is something you will hear at many funerals for veterans. But it's, instead of a musician playing the tune, at many services, a bugler carries an instrument that plays a melody automatically. One veteran who has performed the somber tune for almost a quarter century wanted to change that. Take a look. Of all the military bugle calls, none is more easily recognized, more apt to evoke emotion than the bugle call TAPS. TAPS is our national song of remembrance. It's a bugle call that was started during the Civil War and is actually started as a lights out call, but today is used as a final farewell to our military personnel. My name is Yari Villanueva. I am currently the uh, president of TAPS for Veterans, a nonprofit organization that helps provide live buglers for military funerals. I'm also the executive director of the Doughboy Foundation. TAPS for Veterans came about uh, because we saw a need for live buglers at military funerals. In the late 1990s, a lot of the military bands were being downsized. And because of that, uh, there was a lack of military buglers available to play at funerals. At first, they thought they could use a cassette recording. Then they had a CD that was put out. But it looked very awkward to bring a boombox into a cemetery. So the idea was to have an electronic bugle, that is, an instrument that had an insert in it that would, would play taps. However, we've always thought that the better option is to have a live bugler. However, unfortunately, the electronic bugler has taken precedence over a live musician. And this is something that we thought we could uh, address and something that we could do better. We could have a live bugler. That was the impetus for forming TAPS for Veterans. We thought that it would be great to honor all veterans with a live performance of TAPS and setting up a system whereby a family in need could reach out to us on our website and, and get a bugler so that we could honor that veteran. We have well over 1,200 buglers around the country who are willing to step up and serve. The emotion of a person playing it, the, the music coming from their heart, you know, that goes through the tubing out, that's out to the people hearing it is really important. Um, a live performance is just so, uh, so much preferable over than a recorded one. I mean, no one wants to go to a symphony hall and uh, sit and listen to a recording of a symphony. They want to see and hear the live musicians playing that. We understand how important it is to, to have the, the recording, but it's really important and paramount that a live bugler, bugler be used, especially when you have one who's there willing to give their services to honor that veteran. And at the bottom line, that's what it's all about, honoring that veteran for his, his or her service to our country. The United States Marine Corps celebrates its 248th birthday today. The Corps was established by the Continental Congress on this date back in 1775 as part of the lead-up to the American Revolution. 
their first recruiting headquarters was in the Tuntavern of Waters on Water Street in Philadelphia, now considered to be the birthplace of the Marines. Since then, the few and the proud have fought for America both on land and sea. The Marines are currently the only military branch which does not have a shortage of recruits, and that's without any special bonuses. Recruiters say the only reward recruits need is to be able to call themselves Marines. And you know, Evelyn, I have a friend who's served as a Marine. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're tough people. I believe, yeah, I believe so. And especially nowadays, and I think um, ahead of Veterans Day, right, especially in times now, we're reminded of how important, how much sacrifice they actually have to give and how, yeah, how much endurance it takes. So. Yeah, and they're very committed. The motto of the Marines is Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful. Interesting facts. All right. Uh, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend. I'm Evelyn Lee. Yes, and have a good Veterans Day. I'm Kevin Hogan.